Hi, I'm Dr. Pat Besu, the president and CEO of Cancer Treatment Centers of America and the host of Focus on Cancer, the show where we explore the issues that patients deal with in their battle against cancer with answers from experts in cancer care. Today, I am pleased to welcome one of the world's experts in cancer care, Dr. Maury Markman. Dr. Markman is the president of medicine and science at Cancer Treatment Centers of America and a remarkably uh, renowned oncologist uh, in the field of medicine. We are very excited to welcome you back to the show, Dr. Markman. Thank you, Pat. I'm delighted to be here. Well, last time I uh, really enjoyed our discussion. We covered uh, an important topic in pharmacogenomics. We, we covered a range of things from the uh, just kind of breaking down that word, uh, you know, what is the, the pharmacology side in terms of how drugs interact with our body, as well as the genetic side in terms of the role of, of genes and, and what they play in our lives and our health and, uh, and, and the role they may play in cancer. Just to, to kind of ground us again, uh, Dr. Markman, can you just give our audience a, a reminder, an overview of what is a gene and, and what is the role of genes in our health? Well, um, very important, very critical question. Uh, a gene is, um, I guess, most easiest to describe it is that is that functional unit within the, the DNA of the germline. Um, we're talking here now about, uh, of course, the, the genes in, in, in all of us that develop from the they're there from the time of conception, when the egg and the sperm uh, come together, and uh, half of the DNA comes from the male and half from the female, uh, and that double helix reforms. Um, the unit that determines uh, uh, individual proteins, individual regulatory components of how proteins work, that is defined as a gene. And it's estimated that uh, each of us have somewhere between 20 and 25,000 genes uh, that, uh, again, they're, they're these units that, that determine, uh, you know, uh, all of our biology, all our physiology. Absolutely. It's a, it's a remarkable world, uh, you know, to think that, that we are so similar, uh, but also unique in these uh, various blueprints that we have. And uh, the various combinations that result in in our differences in eye color and uh, and, and hair color and in some cases even uh, you know personality differences. Uh, it's what makes us. Uh, it's what ties us together, but also uh, makes us so so unique. Um, let's talk about it specifically in um, in the in the cancer arena. What are the roles uh, that the genes play in in cancer? Well, in, in cancer, the, they play a critical role. Let me distinguish first uh, what we were just talking about and to some extent what we were talking about um, our last time we spoke, and that is the, the germline. Again, emphasizing the germline here because I'm going to, you know, we're going to contrast that in a moment to the cancer. So the germline is what's in all our cells, our normal cells, every cell, from, as I said, the moment of conception till the moment of death. Um, and, you know, that's the fundamental uh, aspect of, you know, again, not who we are, but in terms of that, of that uh, foundation, that infrastructure, you could say, uh, that's our genes. And those genes play a critical role in related to cancer. They, they determine um, 
potential risk in certain uh, abnormalities, we, we, we call mutations, major abnormalities, may increase that risk of, of certain cancers. Very, very well known is uh, the gene uh, uh, BRCA and uh, abnormalities in BRCA can increase the lifetime risk for um, a woman for breast cancer, ovarian cancer, and in males, prostate cancer, and in both males and females, um, pancreas cancer. So these are, these are in, uh, again, from, from the time of conception, um, and they become very important then. These abnormalities can relate to uh, a variety of things we can do, including, you know, screening strategies because of increased risk, um, and uh, again, potentially uh, uh, strategies to, at high risk, even do a prophylactic procedures that might um, have a very positive impact in the potential for developing that cancer. But again, I'm emphasizing here the genes in the germline. And then we turn to the cancer itself. And of course, one of the things that uh, characterizes a malignancy, a cancer, is uh, dysregulation, uh, dysfunction of the genes in these cells that become malignant. So here we're talking about uh, genes that are abnormal. Uh, and these abnormal genes can result in the production of proteins that accelerate growth, uh, cause invasion of, the, of a cancer through the normal tissue throughout the body that can lead to uh, the resistance to chemotherapy. So these are genes, but these are abnormal genes and they are related to the cancer itself. And so that genetic, uh, those genetic abnormalities that actually, uh, uh, just for, the, for those who are interested in some of the technical language, they're called somatic. They're not germline, meaning they relate to the cancer not to uh, uh, all of the genes that we have in our body. So you have these two very critical components of the cancer gene story. That's abnormalities that are uh, uh, potentially present within the germline, and then uh, major differences, abnormalities uh, within the cancer itself. That's right. And and I often tell patients it's a it's an important distinction. So just to sort of recap that the, the genetics that we're really describing are exactly what you described, the, the blueprint uh, that might relate to a risk factor to go back to it to analogy I've used is might be the blueprint for your house. And if there's something that's not up to code, uh, a stove that's you know located too close to a, an electrical line or something like that is is something intrinsic in that germline that can lead to a greater risk so that's the genetic side of the house separate but but a related concept is this idea of genomics uh, where we are understanding the mutations within the cancer within the tumor and and that that is a very important aspect of uh of something i i want to double click into today so um, let's talk in that second category, uh, Dr. Markman, about uh, the role for advanced genomic testing. Can you just sort of share uh, an introduction of what is genomic testing, and then we can kind of get into a little bit more of the, the details around that? Yes, uh, Pat, this is, uh, as you highlight, it's a very important discussion. But 
before I answer your question, I just want to emphasize to, to those listening uh, that um, uh, I empathize uh, with uh, some of the complexities of understanding this because we often use the same language, <laughs> same terms to talk about the same thing. So when we talk about um, genetics or genes, as we just discussed, we could be talking about germline, we could be talking about the tumor, we could be talking about both. So uh, it's really important as we have this discussion and other discussions, and patients and families potentially have this discussion with their oncologists, that it's very clear whether you know, you're talking about you know, germline genes, genetics, cancer genes, genetics, or both. So when you, you ask the question, the critical question about um, what we call uh, advanced uh, genomic testing, it's, it's critical to emphasize there's also an element of, of gene testing that is critical um, that relates to the germline. Again, we're not going to focus on that, but I, wanna, I, I don't want for, for anyone to, under, to believe that the, all that's important is, is looking at the cancer itself. But, you know, we look for uh, potential abnormalities in the germline. This is uh, uh, genetic testing to look for family risk, increased risk of potential cancers. But we also then look, the term we use is advanced genomic testing, specifically at, at the cancer. And here we can potentially see major differences, variations, complexities of abnormalities. Uh, because quite frankly, that's what makes a cancer cancer. It's this dysregulation. And sometimes you see abnormalities that are quite frankly and critically uh, uh, targetable. I know we'll come back to that in a moment, meaning these are abnormalities that characterize the cancer and there are potential abnormalities that we can actually target to treat. On the other hand, as I emphasize, since cancers are uh, so dysregulated, we often can see many abnormalities, sometimes dozens of abnormalities that in fact are, you might say, um, uh, you know, kind of uh, just there. Uh, they're part of the dysregulation of the cancer, but in fact, they don't uh, actually drive the cancer forward. Uh, they're there, uh, you can measure them, you can monitor them, but uh, doing something about them, trying to target them is not going to affect the cancer. And one of the major complexities of, of this whole world is for the uh, the scientists and then ultimately the um, the companies uh, and academics developing drugs is to determine which of these are which. And uh, it's a very exciting area. It's a very complex area. Uh, but uh, again, uh, this advanced genomic testing is going to identify many abnormalities, uh, some of which are critically important, and we learn all the time about new ones that are critically important. And there are also abnormalities that are you know, bystanders. Uh, they're the result of this dysregulation, but as far as we know, they are not relevant uh, in terms of our being able to target them and have an impact on uh, the outcome of cancer in an individual patient. So Dr. Markman, again, this is uh, really fascinating, and I agree with you that this can be a very confusing topic. So so essentially, we're we're going down this pathway of of really understanding, let's call it the cancer or the tumor itself, and uh, you know maybe to bring this to life for patients. In in addition to evaluating 
the various blueprints or components within our bodies. Now, let's say there's a tumor, and now we are we are studying, essentially get, getting deep diagnostics uh, of the tumor uh, of the tumor itself. And as Dr. Markman mentioned, in some of these cases, we might find something about that tumor that allows us to treat that underlying uh, abnormality. In some cases, we might get the information, but we don't yet have a, uh, a treatment for that. Those treatments for those underlying abnormalities are often uh, referred to as targeted therapies. Uh, so Dr. Markman, let's, let's kind of do a, a deeper dive into this notion. So we've, uh, you know, we've studied the tumor, we've uh, done advanced genomic testing, can you share some examples with us of uh, of some targeted therapies? Yes, this is actually, uh, in in my opinion, uh, one of the most exciting areas of all of medicine. And and just to to highlight uh, both the relevance and the um, you know what we're learning is is really to go back and say uh, this is not a new concept. It's a very old one. In fact, the initial therapy of all of cancer well over 50 years ago, um, was targeted. We just didn't know that that's what we were doing. And what I'm referring to is, uh, if you look back, you know, historically, um, women with breast cancer um, would have their um, um, ovaries removed, and there would be a temporary reduction um, in the local mass in the breast, if it is extensive, or in the metastases. Men with prostate cancer would have uh, archaeotomies, uh, could have their um, you know, uh, testicles removed. And, and it was recognized that there would be aggression of, um, of prostate cancer. Now, again, no one knew why this worked. We know it today. Um, in the case of breast cancer, this was the uh, removal of estrogen that had been causing some of these cancers to progress. And in the case of um, a prostate cancer, it would have been the androgen, the, the, the male uh, sex hormone. Um, and what one was doing was by these surgical procedures actually targeting indirectly um, the source of the growth um, against receptors in the cancer. We then learned 50 plus years ago um, about uh, receptors for estrogen and breast cancer and uh, antigens uh, for uh, prostate cancer, and then developed uh, medications uh, to treat these, um, these, these conditions based on these receptors. The reason I'm saying all this, these were targets. The targets were uh, receptors um, that were now growing because of the growth factors that went to the cells. And we tried to block the ability of those um, receptors to respond, um, just like we're doing now with more advanced testing. So this is a very old concept, but now we understand what's happening at the molecular level. We can actually measure the abnormalities the presence of these um, uh, mutations or uh, excessive numbers of receptors on cells, 
um, when they're present, and then develop very specific drugs which target those abnormalities. So the first step is to molecularly diagnose or measure the presence or lack of presence of a particular abnormality. And then if it's discovered to use a drug which we know targets or inhibits the effect of some growth factor. And that's the concept. So uh, again, directly answering your question, uh, use of tamoxifen to treat a breast cancer, which has been done for you know 40 plus years, um, is to block the estrogen receptor on breast cancers. And the way you knew this made sense is at that point, or even today, to look for the presence of estrogen or progesterone receptors of breast cancer. Um, next major advance in that area actually was also in breast cancer is drug uh, known as trastuzumab. Uh, the um, Herceptin was the, the brand name. Um, and again, the way one knew that this made sense was to look at the tumor to see if in fact there was excessive number of um, uh, the receptor, uh, actually the receptor is known as HER2, um, and if the, if, there, if the tumor expressed more of these receptors, receptors than normal, that's when you'd use the drug trastuzumab. And if you didn't see this excessive number of receptors, overexpression, the term is, much more of it as you can measure, uh, the drug wouldn't work. So there, again, this is the idea of targeting. And of course, more recently, we've seen uh, incredible advances um, in uh, lung cancer, for example, we can identify about a quarter of patients with um, lung cancer, so-called non-small cell lung cancer, about a quarter of cases that have a particular mutation in a very important uh, receptor known as EGFR, epidermal growth factor receptor. So in the quarter of patients who have this mutation, particular therapies um, which are now widely used are highly effective. In the absence of this mutation, these drugs don't have an effect. How do you determine this? You check the tumor, you test the tumor for these abnormalities in this area that we call uh, advanced uh, genomic testing. That's right, Dr. Markman. And, and for our audience, uh, again, to sort of uh, really set this in context. We're we're zooming inside the body. We're zooming specifically to the tumor, and we are exploring: are there are there attributes about this tumor that allow us to specifically attack uh, that tumor preferentially uh, with, with something known as as targeted therapies? Um, to make a, an analogy that only goes so far, but I think can be helpful is. Many of our audience might be familiar with the idea of of a of a bacterial infection and an antibiotic. There are antibiotics that work more generally. In other words, they might they might disrupt the cell wall of a bacteria, and thus it stops the bacteria. It might stop the bacteria from replicating in a certain way, and thus uh, it affects most bacteria. But there are other types of antibiotics that might be much more specific. They might, they might take advantage of something 
that works for one bacteria, but not another. As we move into the world of cancer therapy, we might have systemic chemotherapy, things that, that can cause damage uh, to a wide variety of cells. But as Dr. Markman and I talked about in a previous episode, there is something called a therapeutic window. The idea that not enough of a dose doesn't give the effect, but too much of a dose can cause more damage, uh, more side effects rather. So if we, if we think about that in the context of a th targeted therapy, in contrast to systemic chemotherapy, systemic chemotherapy will have more likely collateral damage, uh, side effects, if you will, than a targeted therapy, because the targeted therapy is looking for something very specific on, um, uh, on this tumor cell. So uh, one time with a patient in the Navy, I, I use the analogy uh, that imagine that there's wooden ships and, and, and metallic ships. An example of a type of targeted therapy, not very specific, would be, uh, you know, th things, a weapon system that has a magnet to it. So, so the enemy ship with metal is going to be affected, but the one made of wood will not be, right? So this is a complicated subject, and, and really we want to we want to try and bring it to light, you know, for you what what these targeted therapies do. So along the lines of targeted therapies, and and frankly in the in the realm of precision medicine, Dr. Markman, um, no discussion would be complete without a uh, touching on the topic of immunotherapy. Uh, this is an area where you have, you are a, a world expert. You've done a tremendous amount to advance our knowledge and care in immunotherapy. Um, can, can we touch on that topic? First of all, what do we mean by immunotherapy, Dr. Martin? I go back to my comment that I made about, uh, sort of the first therapies for, uh, cancer were, um, uh, you know, targeted therapies, even though we didn't know it at the time. And then you make the same statement about immunotherapy. A uh, hundred plus years ago, uh, there was, you know, evidence uh, that, you know, some cancers would regress for uncertain reasons. And there was actually hypotheses, uh, much information to suggest in, uh, you know, obviously in medical literature, there's very different today that, you know, that actually uh, in the presence of infection, um, that a cancer could regress. The idea is, well, that you're somehow, this infection would stimulate the innate immune system, that uh, that would then also attack the cancer. And in fact, uh, there was a, a, a very famous um, physician uh, who was uh, actually, I should say, run out of town, ridiculed uh, by the name of Cooley, and uh, his idea, the, the term, the things he uses, Cooley's toxins. He he tried to stimulate by these various uh, toxic strategies, uh, uh, you know, the, the immune system. And, you know, and they, of course, had terrible side effects. Um, uh, but in fact, now we realize um, he was really on to something. Of course, at that point, uh, not understanding uh, what we understand today. But, but Pat, I, the, the idea is that somehow, the inherent immune system of, of the individual or all of us in general um, is able to deal with foreign invaders. You, you mentioned about infections. Well, we are all infected <laughs> constantly from the outside. Uh, 
um, when you, again, you, you think about the fact that we are exposed to carcinogens. Those are, those are agents that can cause cancer. Um, the sun, uh, things that, you know, we eat, we inhale. And then when you think about the fact that, you know, people live 70, 80, 90 years. And the fact is that they're exposed to these uh, potential toxins their entire life. Why don't we all develop cancer early? Well, the general answer is because we have mechanisms within all of us, each of us, to identify these abnormalities and to remove them, having nothing to do with therapy. It has to do with this is what happens naturally. So the idea with immunotherapy would be, has been, continues to be, that we could somehow enhance the activity of the immune system and that individual with cancer. We stack back, step, step back a moment. Clearly, when a patient develops cancer, something has failed within that individual's, uh, I, I mentioned the protective part of their whole life, doesn't develop cancer, or something went wrong because the immune system wasn't able in this particular patient at this particular time to control that cancer. So is there some way we can stimulate the immune system of that individual to enhance that individual's immune system to now eliminate or, or at least control the cancer? And that's the concept of, of uh, immune therapy. And there, there are lots of approaches that have been tried for the over the years. There are lots of approaches being tried now. There's uh, the two basic concepts are, number one, to try to give something to a patient to stimulate their immune system, or almost the exact opposite is to give something to a patient that will eliminate the blockade that currently exists in their immune system. So it's not to directly stimulate, it's to eliminate some kind of a blockage that the tumor has been able to induce and then allow the immune system to um, be functional. And this latter strategy, this somehow eliminate the blockade is what is quite frankly over the last half dozen to a dozen years that's truly revolutionized the care of cancer. Um, a, a group of uh, drugs known as checkpoint inhibitors, they inhibit this blockade. Um, and in many tumor types, this has now become a standard of care. It's, it's an immune therapy approach. So, Dr. Markman, I, uh, I love your, your explanation there, and I agree that immunotherapy is such a, an exciting uh, area where we've already made such tremendous progress in, uh, and, and frankly, I know you and I agree that there's, there's much more to be excited about uh, down the road. Uh, you know, one of the analogies that I, I like to use with the immune system is, is sort of its, its homeland security. And its primary function is to keep out, uh, let's say, you know, infection, which in this case might be foreign invaders invading our bodies. And, and although that's not an easy exercise, they're at least easier to identify. One of the difficulties with, um, with cancer and the tumor cells is really this idea that they are uh, born from within. It's kind of like homeland terrorism. And so they're, they're, they're not wearing foreign military uniforms, uh, they are, they are actively, you know, they are, maybe they, they have American passports or, 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 or you know, are, are American citizens. And so immunotherapy is, is really trying to 
give the body an edge. And, and let me just take a step back. You, you, you made a good point earlier, which is that uh, that Homeland Security function is constantly doing its job. Uh, you mentioned sun exposure. You mentioned carcinogen exposure. It is picking up those those domestic terrorist threats, if you will, on a regular basis. And that's why we don't constantly develop cancer, because those crimes, if you will, are being stopped. But when a certain tumor type is able to to evade those responses, immunotherapy, to continue this metaphor, works in a certain way to make to make it easier to identify and stop uh, that target. So maybe as an example, there's a domestic terrorist gang and they all are wearing, I don't know, making this up, red hats or green hats or something. And now we're able to say, okay, we've identified, look for everybody in a green hat and that might be able to, to help us identify them. And so, so, so really, you know, I, I like this analogy for, for the patients I speak to because it sort of puts it in that context that, yes, the body is constantly doing its job. But in some of these cases, the tumors expect uh, uh, escape detection and immunotherapy can be a way to to really bring our bodies, homeland defenses much more to bear on on the tumor by giving it some sort of advantage. Do you, uh, anything you'd like to add to that? Many, many years ago, I was uh, one of these uh, bright eyed, bushy tailed uh, young individuals who thought we were going to cure cancer with immunotherapy. I spent a couple of years at the Laboratory of Immunology at the National Cancer Institute trying to, you know, see how we could helpfully stimulate the immune system. And we done we did some some pretty, you know, aggressive things to try to treat the patients, stimulate the immune system. One of the things, you know, we learned, however, and and quite frankly, uh, it took the brilliant observation of Dr. Jim Allison, who recently was awarded the Nobel Prize for his, in retrospect, very simple observation. Uh, just like you were trying to point out, is it? Yeah, but the immune system is working, and yet there's these things, um, you know, that, these invaders that are that are that are successful. What Dr. Allison uh, said, but if you actually look at the tumors, you see lots of lymphocytes. These are cells that, you know, where where these immune cells are being, they're making these immune systems work for these cells. They're present within the cancer, and yet they're not working. And the idea that it was the cancer that was producing substances that suppressed an immune system that was actually working in overtime. It wasn't that the immune system was failing, it was that it was being blocked. And the observation by Dr. Allison and others said, well, let's see if we can remove the blockade so that these, these invaders that you mentioned can now be recognized. It's not, again, that the immune system isn't revved up, it's it's being blocked. And and that was an incredible observation. Um, and that's led to where we are are today. Ter yeah, terrific. No, I think Dr. Allison's work there is is a great example of uh, you know, it's almost like they're they're using fake fake uh, passports or something to uh, uh, to do it. And uh, you know, we're we're giving the uh, the immune system back a chance to uh, to better recognize uh, these terrorists. And and for the record, Dr. Markman, I I still consider you, uh, uh, with your excitement and your passion, despite your experience, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, and in, uh, in all the things <laughs> that you're uh, <laughs> that you're, you're you're helping advance for the field of of medicine and oncology. So, so maybe actually along those lines, um, and and I mean this sincerely. I mean your your personal contribution to the field 
uh, has been tremendous. Uh, so many of, of us as colleagues are so grateful for, uh, for all that you've done uh, in advancing the knowledge and caring for patients. But I know that, that our work is far from over. So, so paint for me a picture. You are, in addition to being a phenomenal physician, I consider you to be a visionary. As, as exciting as precision medicine is, exciting as the advancements are that we've talked about, uh, frankly, on these episodes uh, from pharmacogenetics uh, to immunotherapy, but this broad t- you know, topic of precision medicine, what does the next decade look like? What, what, can, what can we all expect to see or hope to see on the horizon? Well, Pat, this is a critically important question. Uh, uh, I am incredibly optimistic uh, for the future. Uh, I would predict the next five years, we'll see more advances than we have seen in the last 25, 30 years. And the reason is because of precision medicine in general and precision cancer medicine specifically. Let, let me emphasize what I mean by that. And, and you alluded to this earlier. It's the idea of being more precise. It is not that standard chemotherapy didn't hit a target. It did. It just hit lots of targets and hit lots of nonspecific targets, causing a lot of toxicities. So the goal with all concept of precision medicine is to be more precise in the targets that are relevant to eliminate side effects. And very importantly, if a drug is not going to work or not going to have a positive effect at a particular point in time uh, in the natural history of that individual cancer, not to use it. So my prediction is we are going to see far more specific precision medicine approaches where we will not only uh, start our therapies based upon the abnormalities present within a cancer, but on a regular basis, and I mean perhaps monthly, monitor the course of the illness through the blood. I note that the FDA has very recently approved two different companies' platforms to evaluate uh, these molecular abnormalities, not in the solid tumor itself, but in the blood, meaning that there are characteristic molecular abnormalities that can be detected in incredibly small numbers of cells that might be circulating in cancer patients to use this information to more precisely divine therapies that uh, will work to stop therapies that are not working or not to start them. Uh, So the future will be much more precision medicine based, including in the immunotherapeutic approach uh, where we can anticipate what will work, we can anticipate the development of resistance, we can alter the therapies quickly, we will develop new strategies that are uh, uh, focused on very specific uh, targets. I think the next five years we'll see a increasingly rapid revolution in our care. Let me emphasize, this will also favorably impact the, uh, as you mentioned, the therapeutic window to, to uh, you know, you can justify the, the, some of the side effects if you can have a major therapeutic effect, positive effect. And you can't justify those side effects if the drugs are not going to work. We're going to see much more focused on uh, that relative uh, side effects versus benefits. And of course, it's critical to mention that uh, the cost of these therapies, so that if you're going to give a therapy that has a very high probability of causing having clinical benefit, uh, improving quality of life, substantially improving survival, 
one can say you can justify certain costs, whereas if these therapies are not going to have an effect, only toxic, why should they be given? Why should the individual patient, employer, insurer, society pay those costs? So I, again, I think all of these developments will be very positive as we move forward. Absolutely, Dr. Markman. I share I share your enthusiasm and your your optimism. I think the next five years uh, definitely will bring a greater acceleration and greater uh, rate of advancement than we've even seen in the last twenty five. And so um, I think that's tremendous. I, I I agree with some of the things that you said, and I just want to reiterate them. This notion that we have traversed in in all of medicine, but particularly in cancer, from a, you know, what used to be long, long time ago, much more of a shotgun approach or sort of a general kind of, you know, dropping a bomb on kind of the enemy sort of approach. We've gotten much more smart and targeted and sophisticated. And what that allows us to do is to, is to widen that therapeutic window to cause damage to the cancer cells while causing uh, you know, limited and, and hopefully no damage uh, to to our own um, cells, which thus eliminates the cancer while reducing side effects. And and I think um, the 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 widening of this therapeutic window, the narrowing of that scalpel-like, laser-like precision, uh, is is going to be phenomenal to watch. And 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 your comments on uh, on on the cost, I think, is, is is spot on as well because you're right. You know, something that is just a uh, you know a, a general bomb approach should should not you know be uh, as as rewarded or uh, you know reimbursed, remunerated as something that is that is much more targeted. I, I would be remiss in in saying if I didn't mention this, and I know I know you agree that. You know, given the prevalence of cancer uh, in the world, uh, given aging population and and the increase in 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 cancer diagnoses, uh, the cost of cancer that we need to continue to not just make advancements in the science of uh, of oncology, which we are, but also the accessibility and the affordability of uh, of of cancer care therapy uh, in this country and around the world, um, because it's it's sad. I know you and I work very directly with organizations and and certainly with CTCA and patients to make sure that patients can get the care that they need. But all around the United States, there are examples of patients who who sadly defer their cancer care or can't afford their cancer care, and uh, and collectively we need to work together to make sure that that oncology care is. Is uh, is accessible and affordable in addition to uh, the advances that we're making. So, speaking of making sure that our patients are are well cared for and have access to uh, to all the the wonderful things that we're talking about, let's move to uh, that same portion when I had you on the show last time, where we we go directly to some some patient questions. And uh, this is from a patient who, who asks, uh, can you have immunotherapy to slow down CLL? Uh, Dr. Markman, what would you say to that patient? This is a, first of all, it's a, a wonderful question. Um, and it really does emphasize uh, what we sort of alluded to uh, that earlier about what we're learning. 
CLL is a is a, a complex disease. It's actually a common um, hematologic malignancies where the lymphocytes uh, are uh, a number excessive number in the bone marrow and in the blood. The early stages of the illness, um, it could literally be known solely because of the presence of an increased number of blood cells that are detected in a routine blood test, no symptoms at all. Later, this can result in uh, growth of lymph nodes, uh, uh, dysfunction of the immune system in general, uh, organ dysfunction, um, and uh, you know, really a transformation into a very serious, uh, ultimately fatal um, uh, condition, uh, not the benign process that I started with. So CLL is a very complex disease and, and early data is suggesting that immunotherapy does have a role and, and the role may very well be in the, uh, really today on the, the more advanced stages um, the, the, where there's, there's this transformation into a much more aggressive uh, malignancy. And there's some data there that the drug can be uh, quite effective in some of these uh, patients and perhaps less so in the, in the early stages. Um, but the key to point is that much more research needs to be done we need, um, as a society um, and oncologists, to support these research efforts to truly define uh, where these therapies work. And again, this, this emphasizes, again, the importance of, uh, we talked about advanced genomic testing, uh, I'll use a more, even a more general term, biomarkers, determining you know, uh, at the molecular level, you know, what are the markers that will determine whether um, a therapy will work or not. They may be uh, genetic information, but there may be other uh, markers uh, that are relevant uh, that we need to determine. Um, but CLL is an area of, of very active development uh, of immunotherapy today. Terrific, terrific. Uh, here's a question that I, from a patient that I, I, I've heard uh, before and, and, and related to today's uh, topic. The patient wants to know, are personalized medicine and precision medicine the same thing? I feel like I've heard those terms used interchangeably. What would you say, Dr. Markman? <laughs> I've, sort of, I've sort of attacked that one when I was saying, you know, we don't have very good nomenclature here because, uh, you know, we, we use, you know, the genetic testing, which is germline and genetic testing, which is a tumor. We use the same terminologies and patients may scratch their head and say, well, what are they talking about? Um, here's a wonderful example. Uh, different people have different definitions. I personally, uh, because of the, uh, of the of the issue of, uh, of, of you know, you have to make up your own definitions. I would use the term precision medicine to focus on the uh, on that part that relates to, to the biology of the cancer, uh, the molecular abnormalities, the biomarkers I've referred to. That's my personal definition. Um, I would use the term personalized medicine to be much broader than that. Clearly, personalized medicine includes precision medicine because it's the focus on the, you know, on, on the cancer itself. But it's much broader than that. It obviously includes all of the issues that relate to that individual patient. Uh, that includes their uh, comorbidities, other diseases they might have. It includes their socioeconomic status, their their behavioral medicine needs. Uh, being personalized, so it's it's a broader definition. Now, I'm I'm fully aware that that some would use personalized medicine the same way they use precision medicine, but but I think personally that it's personally that it's important that we uh, you know do distinguish these two because they're 
Both are critically important. Precision medicine is absolutely not all that's important. Biology is critical, but the large aspect of that individual patient goes beyond the biology of the cancer. So I would see personalized medicine as a much broader, much, much broader and critically important definition. Well, Dr. Markman, I would personally agree with your precise uh, definition there. And uh, maybe just to add to that patient's uh, uh, terrific question, uh, agree with Dr. Markman. I think of personalized medicine as a broader category, which basically says instead of treating a one-size uh, cookie-cutter approach, one-size-fits-all approach, every patient is the same. Let's look at the patient individually. Uh, as Dr. Markman mentioned, um, do they have diabetes or, or do they have obesity? Uh, you know, what are aspects of their care that might change the the diagnosis and therapy, uh, uh, you know, uh, behavioral medicine, uh, some of the, you know, access to, to medications, all of those being incorporated in treating an individual patient as an individual. As Dr. Markman mentioned, precision medicine, we would agree is really the, the much more uh, biological, uh, scientific nature of, uh, of, of really exploring at the molecular level uh, you, you know, what is happening inside, uh, inside of the cell or inside of the, the tumor uh, in order to deliver a much more targeted uh, therapy. So a uh, good question. And, um, and we hope that that's helpful. So uh, just a couple more here that I, that I think are, are important and germane. Uh, this patient said, do targeted therapies and immunotherapies have more side effects than say chemo or radiation, or are they easier to tolerate? Again, a very uh, important question, uh, and you know, uh, this always is is difficult when you are talking about a very you know high level answer, which is all I can give, versus that individual patient uh, who might have said, "But I had X, or I had Y, or a family member had X and Y." Uh, I, I cannot talk about that individual patient because what they experienced is what they experienced. But in general, uh, both targeted therapies uh, and immunotherapies are less toxic, have less side effects than what we uh, traditionally call chemotherapy or cytotoxic chemotherapy. And the reason for that is, uh, we've already alluded to, Pat, uh, we, we talked about the non-specific nature of, of, of chemotherapy. Uh, the drug cisplatinum, which, uh, you know, I've, I've been involved with now for over 40 years. It's, a, it's, a, uh, it's an incredibly important drug. Um, but it, quite frankly, is the drug that gave medical oncologists uh, their bad name, where people said things like, well, you know, life is not worth living because of this drug, cisplatinum. Uh, why do we give it? Because it was so effective. But it, it had tremendously nonspecific toxic effects in addition to its specific effects on the tumor. And in general, again, I may emphasize in general, these targeted therapies, including the immunotherapeutic approaches, are less toxic. Um, and that's a very good thing. Couldn't agree with you more. We, in this in this battle against cancer, the war on cancer, uh, you know, I, I sometimes do find that, meta, that metaphor of uh, of that war to be um, to be germane here, and I agree with Dr. Markman that generally speaking, 
these immunotherapies or, or these targeted therapies are designed to spare more innocent or civilian lives while uh, you know damaging the the, the foreign uh, the foreign enemy and and so generally speaking these targeted therapies are designed to do exactly that is to affect specifically the enemy in this case the cancer cell with less effect or hopefully no effect on uh, on the surrounding tissues or those innocent lives. So maybe there's time for, for one more question. Uh, this is from a patient. Um, is advanced genomic testing available for stage four cancer patients? Yes. <laughs> uh, I, I want to emphasize it's not just stage four cancer patients, but it's certainly available for stage four. And, and for, for those in the audience, stage four is uh, uh, it's a classic uh, definition, which means uh, metastatic disease, means the cancer is spread uh, to uh, organs uh, outside of the area of the uh, site of origin of the cancer. Um, and uh, yes, the answer is uh, uh, this is where uh, this advanced genomic testing, quite frankly, can be most helpful um, in a setting where, for example, the primary known effective therapies for a particular condition identified in large phase three randomized trials either no longer working or they never worked, to try to find that unique abnormality in that individual patient's tumor that can be targeted to favorably impact outcome. Uh, this is a very much, in my opinion, absolutely standard of care today. Absolutely, Dr. Markman. And, and along those lines, maybe we'll close with something that's kind of the, the corollary to that patient's question. Are there patients who should not who are not candidates for uh, genomic testing, or is this something that if somebody has an existing diagnosis of cancer, they should get uh, genomic testing? Can you help kind of uh, you know just discuss for patients who who is a candidate who should be considering genomic testing versus who who should not be? Yeah, Pat, a very good and important question. Unfortunately, it's a it's a complex answer, so I'll try to simplify it. You know, clearly uh, we have been focused in this conversation on the patient, the, the population of patients where we are looking for uh, treatments that uh, might improve outcome uh, better than superior to existing therapies. Um, that being said, a very large proportion of cancer patients today are managed extremely well, extremely effectively, with highly uh, favorable outcomes, set, uh, and, and absolutely uh, acceptable quality of life with standard care treatments. And uh, I, I certainly would not want to um, suggest in any way that we need to throw away uh, our uh, effective treatments, so many of which exist today, uh, and substitute it with this, let's get genomic testing um, and throw that out. Uh, this is, uh, we are learning more about the advanced approaches. We are incorporating more of these into standard of care, but in many clinic settings, uh, the standard of care is highly effective and that should, what should be considered first. Doesn't mean that one might want to get, not, doesn't mean that one does not want to get additional information that one might use later if necessary. It's perfectly reasonable to have the tumor uh, tested, to look for abnormalities, but um, that might be employed later. But in fact, 
they may never be employed because the standard treatments today that have existed for five years, 10 years, 20 years are highly effective. And the patient's standard treatments, surgery, radiation, standard chemotherapy uh, work, the disease goes away, never comes back, can't argue with that. So, um, you know, uh, I, I think it's very important to point out that standard of care therapies today remain, they remain very effective, I'm not suggesting in any way that one should take these new strategies and replace them. That, of course, is the, the purview of, of clinical trials. If someone wants to sort of say, well, let's try something new as a standard approach, that ought to be a, a, a examined in, in appropriately designed trials. Well, Dr. Markman, as always, uh, you've done a, a remarkable job taking a, a complex set of topics and, uh, and terms and, and, and really putting them into understandable and, and digestible uh, pieces that, uh, that can benefit uh, patient education and, and, and patient care. And so, so we thank you greatly for that. Uh, thank you again for coming back on the show. Very uh, enlightening uh, conversation around uh, the world of precision medicine and and advanced genomic testing, uh, as well as a, a variety of other topics that we we hit on during the uh, the show here. Um, so I know you're a, a busy man, and uh, I really just wanted to thank you again for taking the time uh, away from patient care and and research and and continuing the battle against cancer. So thank you, Dr. Markman. Thank you, Pat. I'm delighted to have been able to participate and uh, look forward to doing it in the future. <laughs>